Well, good evening. I'm glad to see you tonight, and uh, we're going to do a quick review. And there's a lot of ground to cover. I mean, a lot of ground to cover, but I promise you, um, I know that you can't handle any more than what you're, than how long you can be seated. So um, I won't wear you out. I won't be like the Antichrist and try to wear out the saints tonight. But uh, we want to hit this tonight, and then next week I'll pick right back up uh, as we just work our way chapter through chapter. There are a few things that I find fascinate people more than studying the book of Revelation. People always want to talk to me about that. And one of the things that I tell believers is, you can understand this book. God would not have given us this book if He did not want us to understand it. Sometimes people complicate the book, and I will go through some of those reasons tonight while we do the review, um, because of, number one, not reading the book, number two, not praying that God would open their eyes and show them wonderful things as they read the book, and third, because they read what other people have to say about the book, and oftentimes there's some of the people that you read will have a, a balanced and a biblical approach, and then there are other people that they're always trying to read Revelation into their newspapers rather than read the newspaper and be able to see what the whole Word of God, the whole counsel of God says about the time we're living in. The book is just laden, as you've already seen, with visions and prophecies, symbolism, seals, trumpets, horses, all kinds of things. We haven't even got past chapter 7 yet. But all of those can be understood. I think that the fundamental weakness that people have is they speculate with the unusual rather than get, rather than be fascinated or fascinate themselves with the subject of the book. And the subject of the book is Jesus. Revelation is all about Jesus. <clears throat> Sometimes uh, somebody will ask me, well, how do you know that? And I will quote them a verse of Scripture, and they go, oh, well, that's in the Bible. Dude, there's nothing more exciting than what the Word of God has to say. I, there is nothing more. I don't care how many degrees somebody may have, to their, have after their names. That's no slam against education. I'm grateful for mine. I don't care how well-traveled they might be. I don't care how profound they might be. There is nothing more fascinating and nothing more rock solid than this is what the Word of the Lord says. Billy Graham, I will always remember Billy Graham, not so much for one particular sermon, but for every time he would say, the Bible says. That just brings comfort to me. The Bible says. And I want you to be fascinated with that book as well. So stand with me and let's read from Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 tonight. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. And this is his report of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obeys what it says for the time is near. Father in heaven, I ask you tonight in the name of Jesus, would you just open our eyes as we do a review? Lord, 
over all of the messages as we've done. That's over 200 pages of my own uh, manuscripts, Lord, from this. And I pray that those who have walked with me on this journey, they're just gonna, their memories are going to be stirred. They're going to remember, oh God, it'll come back to them. Uh, you do that in their lives. And Lord, I pray for those that uh, are new to the study with us tonight. We'll go back and listen online and capture the notes as well. Father, we pray tonight, we just want to be a city set on a hill, reflecting, radiating the love of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. You can be seated. And if you'll give me a second here, I um, came right out of one meeting into here, and I forgot to enlarge the print, and I'm having difficulty seeing. Now, I can see real good. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14 says, You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Now, there's not a lot of Scripture in your outlines tonight. You should have all of those. You can get those from the church if you don't have them. Um, they should be online. Pastor Mark can tell you more about how to, to obtain those online. But the book, as I said, is about Jesus. It's about the light of the world. The book gives you a glimpse into heaven. We'll look at that tonight as well. It'll give you a glimpse as what's happening in heaven tonight. The book is not meant to confuse, but the book is meant to comfort. The book is not meant to condemn. The book is meant to encourage. The book of Revelation is that closing chapter in the Bible that goes from Genesis to Revelation and shows us we win. We win in Christ. And it's an encouraging book. It's a great book. And it can be understood. The church is to be a light to the world. We don't blind people with any sort of condemnation. We don't blind people with legalism. But what we want to do is to remember what Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hillside. We want the love of Jesus. We want the light of Jesus. We want that radiating out from us to people who really genuinely need hope and are opening and listening. One of the first things that I did was took you through some interpretive models for the book of Revelation that I think are important and will help you as you study. Number one was the idealist principle. And I see the idealist principle in the book, but it's not the only principle. The idealist principle that some commentators and some authors write about the book of Revelation is just simply that the book of Revelation contains timeless principles that we should obey. Yesterday, I read a lengthy dialogue from a major seminary here in the United States that in the last 50 years has gone extremely liberal and has abandoned uh, the inspiration and inerrancy of the Scripture. And I was reading their explanation of why they have made those choices and made those abandonments. And, and then as I read it and looked at the faculty and some of the things they had written, then I began to understand here were a group of people who had lost their confidence in the inspiration of the Word of the Lord. But what they did, it says the Bible should not be abandoned. Now, this is by a Protestant seminary. The Bible should not be abandoned because it's just filled with timeless principles, but they no longer see it as the Word of God. And friends, the flaw in the interpretist, the interpretist uh, model of Scripture is, is not that people who are, who are idealists, the flaw in it is not that they see the principles, it's just that they deny everything else that the Bible has to say about itself or about Jesus or about history when it comes to the book of Revelation. The historists, we talked about this in quite a bit of detail, and that was a, a model for, for studying that says that you can read down to the letter the history 
of the world from the time of Christ's resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, until the end of time. That is not at all. It's not a detailed map. There is history in the book of Revelation, but there's much yet to be fulfilled. The preterist, a model of interpretation, is a strong and a valuable model because it tells us we need to look at Revelation and read it the way the first hearers of the book read it. And that's important because if we try to take Revelation out, as some people do, and say it was meant just for the end of time, God would have never left that book as some hidden locked book that wouldn't have been of encouragement and comfort to his church all these years. Because remember in the first chapter, and we just read it, God says that those who read it and those who listen to it, they are blessed. Can you say amen to that? So I encourage you, read the book out loud, study the book. Not only come and listen to the preaching, but read the book and study the book. Some of the events have been fulfilled, but there's still some that have not been fulfilled. But the book made sense sense to the Ephesians. It made sense to the people who lived in Smyrna. It made sense to the people who lived in Thyatira and Laodicea. The futurist, the futurist believes that some events are waiting to be fulfilled. They see that the, the book is just, there's, that there are some things there, and that's where they see the value of, of the book of Revelation, and that's in its predictive model. We do not come to the book of Revelation as a predictive model of the future. The Bible is not a Madame Watusi handbook. Let me say it again. The Bible is not a Madame Watusi handbook. The Bible is a revelation of God, His great plan that we've been looking at in the book of Ephesians, His love for us, the mystery of the ages, which was Christ's sacrifice for our sins, raised from the dead, and now living in His church, and that one day Jesus Christ will come again. Can we give Him a hand of praise for that? The the eclectic model that I really encouraged you to kind of adopt, and that is to take a mixture of the idealist, the preterist, and the futurist positions. But before you can take those three models and combine them as an eclectic approach and start trying to read the newspaper into Revelation, you first of all got to understand the book. What that process is called, if you remember back to that message, that process is called contextualization. We want to be able to read Revelation in the context of the times we're living in, as well as the context of when it was written. But we cannot contextualize the book to 2018, or if Jesus tarries, 2019, 2020. We cannot contextualize that book unless we first understand it, and that's the reason we're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through this book is so that we can have a, I hope, a great understanding, a, a way that you can apply it and read it. It doesn't mean you won't be learning from it. I'm still learning from it. I submitted to you. As a matter of fact, I submitted to a number of other people before I began preaching this. I've spent 40 years studying this book and preparing for this series of messages because I just simply did not want to approach something that had caused so much confusion to people in times past about the Revelation. It doesn't mean I haven't ever preached passages from the Revelation, but I wanted to be sure when I went through this book, I could be sure that I was standing on solid ground biblically and that I'd also had the chance for other people to speak into my life, challenge maybe some of my assumptions, make me dig a little bit deeper, and hopefully share that with you. And 
my, only, my only wish is that there was more people here on Wednesday nights to hear and go through this series with me. And then the sixth thing was symbolism. And I think this is so important because if you're going to understand the symbolism of the book of Revelation, then you need an understanding of the Old Testament symbolism. And I have endeavored through every message I preached, and that's over 200 pages of, of manuscripts so far that I have shared with you. I have endeavored to take you back to the Old Testament so that you could understand the symbolism that we read in the New Testament. And that's why I'm saying if you haven't been tracking with me or trekking with me and the rest of the church through the book, it would behoove you to go back and listen to the rest, look at those Old Testament verses that I have listed from Isaiah and Ezekiel and Deuteronomy and Genesis and so forth, so that you could understand the symbolism that is there. Because I want to assure you, these seven churches understood the symbolism that's throughout this book. Their enemies understood some of the symbolism that was in this book, and it struck terror in the hearts of their enemies. Revelation is not a coded book that only certain people could understand. Revelation was a book that lost people as well as born-again people could understand. However, you will never fully understand the book until, first of all, you have given your heart to Jesus and you've submitted yourself to Him because the only thing to see the wonder-filled things that God has for you in your Word is, first of all, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, have your sins forgiven in the presence of the Holy Spirit living in you. The Apostle John teaches in his epistles that each of us have an anointing and the Holy Spirit will be our teacher and he will give us illumination and understanding in the Word of God. Can we give him another hand of praise for that tonight as well? And every once in a while, I'll get somebody in the say, just give me facts. Don't give me symbolism. I, I don't want to fool. I just want the facts. Friends, please understand this. Symbols have powerful emotional and intellectual effect. You know, there's a whole chemical chart full of symbols. And for people that understand chemistry, they can just rip that thing right off and go with it. There's all kinds of cultural symbols that mean something to us. Uh, here in Detroit, back during World War II, there was a business that was boycotted and almost went under because there were some swastikas that were on the building that predated World War II a long time ago. Those swastikas were used because that building in particular, the, the architect that designed that building, uh, was fascinated with Native American culture, and he had put a lot of Native American symbols up there, and the swastika was used there. Symbols have powerful effects. If I was to come up here wearing a swastika tonight, you would go, what has happened to pastor? He's become a neo-Nazi. He has backslid. But if I came up here wearing a, a cross, you'd go, well, that's unusual. He doesn't wear necklaces and chains, but that makes sense. But if I was to come up here wearing a big robe and a big old cross around my neck and start growing a beard, you'd laugh, number one, at my beard, but you'd look at me and say, you know, he's having an emotional breakdown, okay? You see, symbolism has a lot of effect. You see, if you're 40 years old, you don't need to be changing your hairstyle because if you start changing your hairstyle after 40, people are going to think you're going to have a midlife crisis, okay? So there's some things that, you know, we understand for different generations at different ages. People are free to make changes. Symbols in the Bible are powerful and they're dramatic. And being able to communicate those symbols, I can't express to you how important it is to be able to communicate those symbols. There was a man one time that was walking with his dog and mule down the road when a pickup truck came around the corner and knocked the man, his dog, and his mule into a ditch. And so the man decided to sue him. 
And so when he got to court, the, the, the defense attorney asked him, he says, Sir, did you not tell the driver of the pickup truck that knocked you into the ditch when he asked you that you were perfectly fine? And the old man went, Well, my dog, my mule, and myself were. He said, No, sir, just answer the question. Did you not tell the driver of the pickup truck you were fine? He said, Well, sir, my dog, my mule, and I, he said, Your Honor, he will not answer the question. Make him answer the question. And the judge says, well, it sounds like he's got something to say. And so the old man said, my dog and my mule and I were walking around, walking down the road. The truck came around a curve. He hit my dog, my mule, and myself and knocked me into the ditch. And he got out of the truck and saw my dog had broke his leg. So he got a shotgun and shot my dog. And then he saw my mule's leg was also broken. So he shot my, dog, my mule as well. And he looked at me and says, how are you? And he says, I'm perfectly fine. You see, interpretation matters. Being able to communicate and tell the whole story matters. And sometimes when you watch a, a, a law and order show or you watch maybe the interview of the Supreme Court judge, uh, potential Supreme Court, you, you're, you, you get frustrated when people, no, 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 just answer the question, yes or no, please. Sometimes you just can't give a yes or no. Do you understand? And so that's why it's so important that you have these models to be able to look at. Well, the first and the last book of the Bible, as we looked at in the second message of the series, was Genesis deals with our creation. Revelation deals with us as a new creation. Genesis deals with our creation. Revelation deals with us as a new creation. Genesis, creation, revelation, new creation. We also looked at Revelation and apocalyptic genre in the Bible because Apocalyptic literature, and I use the phrase Holy Bible here because I just want to keep emphasizing the Bible is the Word of the Lord. When you have apocalyptic literature, something is being revealed. That's very important. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the revealing of Jesus Christ, something that was hidden, and sometimes that's with symbols. But when you have revelation literature, it's evangelistic and it's it's, it's theocentric. It's, it's about God. And so it's a combination of apocalyptic literature. It's a combination of revelation literature. In other words, what you have here is the call of God once we know who Jesus Christ is to repent of our sins and trust him. Apocalyptic literature has to do with the freedom of God and what he reveals and shows us. That's the reason Ephesians has been so important and why we've been camping out there on Sunday mornings for a while because we're looking at the freedom of God with these first three chapters have just taken us into the nosebleed section of what it means to serve and to know God. When we get to chapters four, five, and six, it's gonna get very, very practical and there's where we have our freedom to choose. All of this stuff that we're preaching right now from Revelation 1 through 3 is just glorious. Revelation 4, 5, and 6, the Apostle Paul is going to say, now stop your quarreling. Get your act together. Fight the good fight of faith. And that's where we have the freedom to choose to respond to what the unveiling was all about. Does that make sense? And the same thing is happening. That's the reason you'll hear this word over and over in Revelation, repent, 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 even to the seven churches. Now, the seven churches, let's go through those real quickly. We did um, a, a lot of messages here. Number one, the Ephesian church must repent of their loveless rigidness. They must repent of their loveless rigidness and return to their first love for Jesus Christ. Remember, this is a church that was doing everything right, doing things well, but they didn't love Jesus. They lost their first love for Jesus. I want Woodland to make 
big, big deal, make a big, big deal out of Jesus. I want Woodland to make much of Jesus. When we worship, I want us to worship. And what I mean, I don't want hype. I don't want you trying to be something you're not. But friends, when we come to church, we need, sometimes people say, why do you ask us to clap? Because sometimes there are certain points in this scripture, in the, in the preaching of the word, clapping is a way that we praise God and we defeat the enemy according to the scriptures. We just want to make much of Jesus Christ. Do you get what I'm saying there? And so the Ephesian church, they were doing things right, but they lost their first love. Smyrna is the church that's commended because it's just faithful in persecution. People are dying in Smyrna. People are they're having to give their lives in Smyrna. And Smyrna is commended because it is courageous. It's a faithful church. Pergamum is facing persecution. And unlike Smyrna, they're tempted to compromise. They're tempted to compromise. They're tempted to, tempted to compromise morally. They're tempted to compromise spiritually. They're tempted to compromise economically. And I promise you, look at me, look at me. Every one of us, the pastor included, we will be tempted in the same way. We may face in our lifetime, we may face in our lifetime some of the uh, same sort of persecution that the Smyrna church is, that, that's happening in other parts of the world. This year in the nation of Canada, I bought this out during the series in the nation of Canada, one of the longest, uh, Christ, longest uh, uh, um, credentialed Christian universities in Canada that's been giving law degrees for a long time because they would not buy into the state's interpretation of, of abortion and the state's interpretation of homosexual marriage. They were stripped of their right to practice, to give law degrees. Now, that may, not, that may sound not like a big deal, but friends, Canada is not that much different than the United States. This is North America. This is supposed to be the place of bastion of freedom. I have told you recently, you know, I've read and collected those quotes where Hillary Clinton said we must be forced to change. There were Democrats who believed that so much they wanted her to be president. That is not a political statement. That is a statement of faith that you and I, nobody, we should never let anybody force us to change our convictions of faith even at the threat of life. Jesus Christ is Lord and every human being's life matters. Can you say amen? Thyatira must confront a prophetess of compromise. And this woman had, was leading the church into all sorts of immorality, and they were letting her practice her stuff in the church. The pastor evidently was a timid sort of fellow and wouldn't deal with it, and God's warning the congregation. People are following her rather than following the Word of God. Sardis was the church that we talked about. Remember, we did a whole message on this of inoffensive Christianity. They didn't want to offend anybody. There is offense to the name of Jesus Christ. And I remember if I shared with you Brett Hume, who was, used to be the news anchor and is now a, a, a political consultant or correspondent for the um, Fox News Network. Uh, Brent Hume was talking about his faith and how he'd given his heart to Christ. And he said, there's something very offensive about Jesus. He says, in my line of work, you can talk about Muhammad, you can talk about Buddha, you can talk about witchcraft, you can talk about it, you can talk about anything. But if you bring up the name of Jesus, there's going to be hostility directed at you. He said, I do not know why the name of Jesus is so offensive. Well, Brett may not know, but the Bible tells us if they persecute, Jesus told us if they persecuted me, they will persecute you, okay? And the great offense, I believe, is this, is that there is only one way to God the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ, his Son. That's the great offense that bothers everybody so deeply. Philadelphia was the church that I entitled the model for Woodland Church. <clears throat> 
Philadelphia is the model for Woodland. We want to walk through the doors that God opens, but we don't want to try to force open doors that God has not opened. We talked about that quite a bit. Three doors that we looked at from the Scripture, the door of Scripture. We want to know the Word whenever we have a question at Woodland. Our first, our first response to that is, what does the Bible say? We want the door of mission. We believe that the mission that God has called us all to as the church, to be the light of the world, to be a witness to the world. We have simply said we want to celebrate God's love. That's worship. That's proclaiming who God is. We want to celebrate God's love by persuading, that's evangelizing, people to become passionate followers of Jesus Christ. That's discipleship. So we want to celebrate God's love by persuading people to become passionate followers of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. It's a very biblical mission. But we also saw there was an open door to heaven, and God let us see what heaven is like. And friends, I'm going to tell you, the older I get, the more my friends and the more my family that go to heaven, like the old song says, heaven's sounding sweeter all the time. Can you say amen to that? It really, really does. Laodicea was the complacent church. This was the church that was so wealthy and so well-to-do, and we looked at Laodicea and you remember we talked about the, the, just the, the, the marvel that it is, the ruins that are still there, although they had a bad, bad water supply. This is the church that Jesus said, I, you know, that um, he just had some harsh things to tell them. They, were, they had bad eyesight. He said, you know, you think you're rich, but you're miserable. They forgot that Jesus is the source of everything. Now, I want you to hear me really clearly on this. You will never, listen, you will never, ever, ever, be a passionate follower of Jesus Christ until you realize Jesus is the source of everything. I have been in countries overnight where people's savings, their retirement, and their investments were wiped out. If Jesus is not your source, you panic and you don't know what to do. You have to realize Jesus is your source. As a pastor of this church, I preach stewardship but we are not the source of funding for God's kingdom. God is our source. If we're not faithful, God will still supply the need. He may not use us, but God will still meet the need. You see what I'm saying? And we must never forget that God is our source. So the seven letters give you an idea of what the church is supposed to be like. I mean, when you put all seven of these letters together, although there were seven different congregations, the purpose is to show us this is what the church is to be like. And so when we meet together, we don't meet together to politic. We don't meet together for a convocation like, you know, Republicans and Democrats or like anybody else. We don't meet together to decide what we want to do. We meet together to say, Lord, what have you got to say from us from your word? And what are you saying to us to be and to do today? Can we give him another hand of praise for that? <laughs> Hallelujah. Which therefore means that Jesus is present in the church. He's walking among the candlesticks. Remember that? Jesus is here tonight. Look at your neighbor. It's not weird. You're not mentally insane. You don't know what I did. You're just looking at your neighbor. Just wait a minute. Look at your neighbor and say, Jesus is here tonight. Now behave yourself. He's here. He really is. You get that, don't you? He's here. I mean, he's with me when I go home. He's with me in my thought life. He's with me in my bedroom, my living room, my bathroom. He's everywhere. Jesus is here, and I want him to be here. If there's anything I want for you, I want Jesus for this church and for our children and our young people. So chapter 4 gives us a glimpse of what worship is like before God's throne, and we are invited to worship him now. So we don't just sing songs, Brian. We come up here and we worship the Lord 
We don't have a song service. We have a worship service. You know, and worship is listening to the word. Worship is giving. Worship is praying. Worship begins at home. I was in Greenfield Village with my mom while she was here with us. Don't you love my mama? Isn't she the sweetest thing? I'm telling you. I'm going to tell her. Y'all gave her a hand. I was talking to mom today, and uh, she said, that is the kindest, most loving congregation. She says, I just enjoyed so much being with them. But I was at Greenfield Village, and we were walking her through the house by the windmill. I forget the name of the house. Those of you that really know Greenfield Village, you know what I'm talking about. But the house, the old house by the windmill, got a garden out back. I'm listening to them uh, uh, talk about how the family would read Scripture together and how they would pray together. And then we went into another house on coming back towards the front where they actually had a recording of somebody reading the Bible and reading from... Uh, these little readers that were built around the scriptures. My mother-in-law has a full set of those that I've enjoyed reading from times past when we've been down there visiting. And I thought, this is the way it's supposed to be, that the father is to be the prophet and priest and king of his home, leading his family in family worship, leading his family in prayer. The Bible, according to what they were telling me out at Greenfield Village, was not only a book that they used for worship, but the Bible was how they taught their children. They taught their children to read the Bible. Webster wanted them to read their Bibles. These little readers that I'm talking about, they wanted them to read the Scriptures. And I got to tell you something. We are no smarter and we are no better. We may have more technology, but we are no smarter and we are no better than the people that came before us. We still need family devotions and we still need to be sure that our kids' education is centered in the Word of the Lord. We have not abdicated our children to the government, to the state, to the county or the township. We want to cooperate in every way which is possible and we are grateful for taxpayers who provide schools for children that cannot afford them, but as parents, we are responsible to see that our children get biblically grounded and know the word and we lead them in prayer and that they see God answer prayer. And when you see the book of Revelation in chapter 4, what you see is people worshiping God, which says to me, as we said in that message, our greatest ambition should be to know the Lord. There was a little commercial burned into my sister's and I's memory of these three little pigs. There was a company called Oscar Mayer. Anybody familiar with Oscar Mayer? And these three little pigs would sing wobbling back and forth from the day he is born. It's the hope of every frosty morn pig to become a frosty morn sausage. The height of a piggy's ambition from the day he is born is hopes that someday he'll be good enough to be a frosty morn. We'll never forget that. It's because we used to laugh. That's called sacrifice. We are living sacrifices for Jesus Christ. And when you see, you see people who gave their all that are there. Chapter 5, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He breaks the seal. He opens the scroll. And what does that mean? That means that Jesus is our elder brother. It had to be somebody close that could break those seals and deliver you from captivity and deliver you from slavery. And those seals and those seven seals and those seven scrolls, and we're about to get to the place now where we wrap this up, But remember, the seals were put on an imperial seal that could not be broken except under 
you know, if you broke that seal and you were not the one to break it, you would die. I mean, they, they understood this. And the scroll, we looked at the Old Testament symbolism of sealed scrolls that God would give and, and how scrolls were used there. And as the scroll is broken, one of the things that you read is the church continues this wonderful worship. Who's worthy? Who's worthy? The Lamb that has been slain from the foundation of the world. Our elder brother, Jesus, he breaks the seal. And what does he tell us in chapter 5? He is transformed you and you and me into a kingdom of priests upon this earth now. Can we give him a hand of praise? Right now. And what do priests do? Priests minister unto God. Priests serve God. Priests offer sacrifices up to God. And so it's such a very, very important. In chapter 6, this deals with history. I mean, what's really real? What does it mean to be a human being? The questions that so many college students write, what's moral, what's right or what's wrong? What's the basis of history? Does history have any meaning? Does history have purpose? Is history going somewhere? Or is history this vicious circle that just keeps going around and around? Are there things in our world that can be fixed or are there things in our world so broken that they're beyond repair? Is there a God, and can God be known, and how is God known? In everything that you want to know about history, what happens to you when you die? You find it right there in Revelation chapter 6. And friends, the time is now, and the Bible says there is a time for every season in life. And when you read chapter 6, suddenly it's like one of those movies that you see where somebody sees all of the history of their life just flashing before them. Suddenly you see all of history just beginning to make sense. Revelation is going somewhere. When we say we win, we're not just saying something idle and hype and just being happy. We've read the book. We've understood the book. We've studied it from Genesis to Revelation. We know God is in control. And I'm sorry to get so animated, but that is happy to me. There are four components of history that are represented by the opening of the first four seals. We talked about these. The white horse represented conquest. The red horse represented bloodshed. The black horse meant scarcity and famine. And then I used the Greek word to come up with this phrase, pale green horse. It's chloros. It's a pale, sickly green. You know what chlorine is. That's where we get our word chlorine from. It says a pale horse, but the literal interpretation of that would be a pale green horse. That represents death. Now, there were three more seals that represented the martyr's death and prayer, the judgment of God upon the unbelieving world, and we did not get to the next seal, so uh, we'll get to that when we come back and start with chapter 8. Now, I recommended a book to you. I want to recommend it again. It's an easy-to-read book by Billy Graham called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Easy book to read. If you can't find it on Amazon, you can find it on A Books or Christian. I would recommend first trying christianbook.com just to support a, you know, a, a Christian ministry. You'll find they have great service. Those boys that started that were uh, graduated from Evangel University years and years ago. They're great guys. Um, I've been over there, spoke up in that area a number of times. Then chapter 7, we're still talking about the context of history. Chapter 7, you've got to remember there were no chapter divisions. So we, we're breaking them up by chapters, but there were no chapter divisions. Those came much later. The four angels stand at the four corners of the earth, and the four winds represent God's sovereignty over the earth. 
And today when I was just trying to shrink everything down in time to get it so it could be printed for you tonight, I, um, I just didn't want to give you too much, but understand this. This is not just God's sovereignty, like the king of England is supposed to be a sovereign. God owns it all. God owns it all. God owns you. God owns me. I mean, I'm his. You're his. All the presidents have been his by right of creation, by right of creatorship. But I have a much deeper relationship than he's my creator. He's my father. He's adopted me into his family. And we've been looking at that in the book of Ephesians as well. And then I told you, and um, I meant to get an image of that. I'll try to remember to do that next week. There is a beautiful, beautiful fountain in Rome that uh, I made quite a few pictures of that represents these four rivers, these four winds, that represents all of this. And it's one of the most beautiful works of art that I've ever seen, and the water that flows there. Um, speaking of symbolism, but I remember just looking at it. I'd seen pictures of it in textbooks before, but to stand there and, and all of this from Revelation to go rushing through my mind and, and uh, start trying to explain it to Becky, and Becky just sometimes will go, we're here for our anniversary. I don't want to talk about theology and history, so she had to listen all the way back as I looked at the pictures. It's, I'll tell you, there's something powerful here in Revelation chapter 7. God is sovereign. God is on the throne. God rules and reigns. God is sealing his end-time army there. You'll see that in those first few verses where God seals an army of people in the end time. We talked about the symbolism of the 144,000. Unlike the Jehovah's Witness, I believe it's a literal group. You know, this is, this is symbolic. We talked about the multiples of 12 and the multiples of 10 and the multiples of 1,000 and what that meant. But then it closes with the Revelation 7, 9 through 17. And Pastor Mark, if you don't mind coming up, and it um, looks like I'm going to finish right under the wire here. After this, I saw a vast crowd. Now, this is after the 144,000. This is about the church. These verses describe the church. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were shouting with a great war, salvation, with a great roar. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. These are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. Now, that sentence doesn't mean that everyone died in the great tribulation. These are people that come to know Christ during that time. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the Lamb on the throne, on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. These verses describe... Throughout the ages, all the races and ethnicities that are committed to Christ, people that have been martyred for Jesus throughout history. In the last century, in the last century, from 1900 through 1999, more people were martyred for the sake of their testimony for Jesus Christ than all the centuries prior to that since the founding of the church. Today, we're witnessing wholesale slaughter of Christians, communities. We're witnessing destruction of churches. These verses move me to go sometimes, God, you work in everything for our good and for your glory. 
You told the Smyrna church to be faithful. It would come to an end. We make a mistake if we try to make Christianity so comfortable, then we become complacent like the Laodiceans. If Jesus is not worth your everything, you still haven't discovered what it means for him to be Lord of your life. If Jesus is not Lord of everything, he won't be Lord of anything. And it's necessary for us to remind ourselves once in a while, we can't pick and choose what parts we want. So what do we do with this? Number one, Jesus is coming soon. He's coming soon. Remember what I said? Sometimes people go, well, that's the Bible. Well, let me tell you what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3. Behold, I come quickly. That's all I need to know. I come quickly. It could happen tonight. It could happen while I'm sleeping. It could happen before we leave this church. It could happen before I have to take my next medical test. And that would be a really good thing. <laughs> and that's cowardly, I know. But when he comes and gets us, it won't be because it's an escape mechanism. If he is Lord, of, look at me now, don't miss this. If he's Lord of everything, <laughs> we'll be like the Apostle Paul. We'll be like the Apostle John. We'll be like Peter. We'll rejoice that we're counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. We won't go out of here cowardly. We'll go out here bold and full of the Holy Spirit. There's a new movie that was released. I bought the movie this summer, and uh, we're going to watch it later uh, in the year once I get permission for us to show it, called Paul, an Apostle of God. I've watched it over and over, and every time I've just shed my tears. I said, God, do that in Woodland. Make us faithful to the end. Let's renew our heart's faithfulness to Jesus. As I told you earlier tonight, he's still among the candle stands. Let's be sure that our first love is where it ought to be. And let's pray for a breakthrough. We have homes that need breakthroughs. Many, most Wednesday nights, I meet with somebody right before church. A lot of Wednesday nights, I meet with somebody right after church. Tonight, I was supposed to meet with a family afterwards, and they couldn't come, and something was happening. But we've got families and homes that need a breakthrough. We have people that need a breakthrough spiritually. God will show you, God will show you how to make a decision. The Bible will show you how to make good decisions. The Bible will show you, God will show you as you seek Him first, how to shape your future, how to prepare your children for the future. God will show you how to get your past resolved. There are some people that you know, and I know, their future is being impacted because of their past. God can break those chains. And there are families that are struggling with chains from their past, from a grandfather or a mother or a father or a brother or a sister. They're struggling, and God can break those chains. I've seen it times I can't even come to the pulpit, but I've seen it happen time and time again. Somebody's got to break that chain, so why not let it be you? And understand, that's the power of what we're reading here. God will do that for you. God will manifest himself in your family, and he'll manifest himself in our church if we seek him. That's why Saturday night prayer is so important. Let's have, let's have a resurrection of expectancy. I came to church expecting God to do something through this recap and this review tonight. I come to church every Sunday 
I had this sense of, would you come with me? Would you come to Saturday night prayer? Would you come to midweek service? Would you come on Sunday? Would you come with an expect, because you've prayed, you've sought the Lord? And you said, God, we want to make big. We want to celebrate you. We want to brag about you. We want to worship you. We want to glorify you. But God, we ask you to come and give a breakthrough in our church. I don't want hype. I've said that already. But I want us to be expecting. I want us to be ready for what God will do today. And I want us to be ready for when Jesus comes again. If you'll stand with me, we'll read the last verse. This is from the portion of Scripture that I preached from Sunday morning. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now, you Gentiles, that's us, you're no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are His house. Does anybody remember what I told you? The three eyes, the increasing intensity of Intimacy. There you go. The increasing intensity of intimacy. Say it with me. The increasing intensity of immensity. I did it again. Intimacy. Thank you. Pastor Mark was showing off at lunch one day this week and saying it so fast and saying it perfect every time. I told him, you're fired. (laughs) So he's messed up the next time. Every one of these things, there's an increasing closeness of God. We're not just citizens. We're not just members of the family. But God lives in us. Jesus loves his church. Heavenly Father, I love you so much. And as we come to this altar for a few minutes just to bow and to kneel and worship you together tonight, I just ask you to be glorified. And may there be an increasing intensity of intimacy of Woodland Church in you, I pray, in Christ's name. Would you bring your notes and just come and find a place and kneel and pray, and uh, you can leave whenever you get ready, but in just a few minutes, I'll come and lead us in the closing prayer, but let's come and worship him and thank him. God is on the throne. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, I thank you that as we come and kneel in your presence tonight, your people can understand your word. Your people can understand this book. You have promised them a blessing if they read it and apply it. I thank you for these symbols, Lord, that bring us not only hope and courage, but I thank you, Lord, for the Old Testament as well that helps us to understand what's in the New. And the New Testament that helps us to see how the Old Testament was fulfilled. I pray, Lord, that we will be fascinated with Jesus. I pray that we'll make much about you all the time. I pray that we'll celebrate your great and amazing love. Oh, Father, in the holy, holy name of Jesus, in the holy, holy name of Jesus, we worship you. I pray, Jesus, renew our first love. If we've grown cold or indifferent, Lord, our whole Christian testimony has become more a matter of do's and don'ts. And it's not that we're doing anything immoral. It's just that 
God, we're not making much of you in our lives anymore. Help us to love you and to celebrate you, Lord. Give us the courage that if we're persecuted for our faith, God, we'll rejoice in Christ Jesus. I don't think any of us here are threatened, not in a sense of losing our life, but may we never be ashamed to speak the name of Jesus. May we never be ashamed to pray in the name of Jesus. May we never be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus. But may we celebrate your love. (laughs) Celebrate Jesus. Hallelujah. God teaches the difference between compromising on ideas and principles in order to get things done at work or get things done in an organization. But help us to remember there are some things that we can't compromise. We cannot compromise, O oh Lord, on morality. We cannot compromise on ethics. We cannot compromise on doctrine. On those core issues of doctrine, Lord, there are things that we're not going to divide fellowship over. But when it comes to salvation, when it comes to your word, when it comes to who Jesus is, when it comes to who God is, Lord, when it comes to your return, when it comes to healing, Lord, God, may we always be found faithful and not compromising. I ask you, Father, in the name of Jesus, that we won't be just nice people, but we'll be bold people. And God, if somebody's offended, may we not condemn them, but may the blazing love of Jesus Christ shine forth. God, may they be convicted and persuaded because of just being, Lord, just smitten by the love of God being expressed through the body of Christ. Lord, may they be overwhelmed by the boldness of our expression of love. But we'll never be ashamed of the cross. Hallelujah. Now, Jesus, I pray over every family here. For those who need peace, you are the source of all peace. The shalom of God. 
that everything is as it should be. That people won't just get along together in a home or in a marriage. But husbands will love Christ or love their wives as Christ loved the church. That wives will submit unto husbands that love them and cherish them and lay down their lives for them. The children will honor their mothers and fathers that it may go well with them through all their days upon the earth. The shalom of God that helps us to walk in health. And when sickness or illness comes our way, Lord, that we recover and we rise up. And when that day comes and we breathe our last breath, that, God, we can lay our hands upon our children and our grandchildren and give to them the blessing that we have been blessed with, that things may be in their lives as it should be. May our children go further, achieve more, know you better, Lord, serve you better than what we've served you. May they build upon the foundation as we have built upon the foundation of those who have come before us. Oh God, don't let us be complacent about these things. Now Jesus, I testify, whoever occupies 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Whoever controls the House or the Senate, Lord, whatever happens, you are Lord of all history. You are in control. And Lord, from the four corners of the earth to the four rivers of the earth and the four winds of the earth that represent, Lord, symbolizing all of this creation, this is my Father's world. This is my Father's world. <laughs> and Jesus, one day you're going to come and you're going to renew it and you're going to give us a new heaven and a new earth. And I can't wait. I hope that you'll just kind of pray through every message like that, just applying each day. And boy, if you'll pray over it and you'll remember how to live it out and walk it out, and pretty soon it just will be Jesus saturating your conversation, saturating your behavior, your dreams, your confidence your future, it'll be Jesus-shaped. You can understand this book. So God, we thank you for the blessing that comes from reading and listening and doing what this book calls us to do. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Stay and pray as long as you like.
but that's my amen.